Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. This is the first time that I'm 35 years old, and uh, I just need kind of like a nod, you know, either way, yes or no. Is it possible for camp to have finished on Wednesday, and today I'm still tired as a 35-year-old? Is that possible? Yeah? Or am I just really out of shape? It's... It gets worse. Okay. I thought 40, I thought 40 was going to be this moment when I'm still like picking up the pieces three days later, but I guess it is, uh, it started. Now I'm depressed. All right. Uh, if you are in here though, and you helped out with camp, if you were a parent that came in and helped out, uh, if you're a college leader, high school leader, uh, we, had, we had senior hires help out with camp. I think we had close to about 15 uh, college age and senior high students that helped out with our junior high camp. And uh, I, I just, I loved it. I loved it, Hillside. Uh, I love that here at Hillside we take this very intentional approach from the, you know, the oldest in the room to the youngest of making sure that we're always pouring down into that next generation. And so it's just so beautiful to see that all happen. So if you're in here and you helped out with that, Thank you so much. Uh, it was, it truly was amazing. It was exhausting, but it was amazing. Yes. So we are going to be in Luke 14 this morning. So if you want to turn there with me or uh, click the app and then click Luke 14, you can do that as well. Uh, before we get to verse 7, which is kind of this two-part parable that Jesus is giving, I believe, okay, that this is the, the only parable in the Gospels where Jesus kind of takes this approach by, by hitting something, a, a topic or a, a, something that he has to kind of confront from one angle, and then he completely reverses and comes in from a different perspective to hit the topic from a different angle as well. I do know that this is the, the only time that this gospel or this parable is shared is in the gospel of Luke. He's the only one to write this down. And something is taking place to get us to this point. Uh, we have in verses 1 through 6, we have a, a setting where Jesus has been invited over to a member of the high council of Pharisee's house, which is a little uncommon because we know that of the high council, most of the members are Sadducees. They are the political power in the Jewish community. The majority of them are Sadducees. And yet, we also know that there are some Pharisees, the ones that are more of the religious leaders of the Jewish culture. And they are also present. Gamaliel is one that you may know from like the beginning of Acts. He has this big moment as the early church is starting. And Jesus has been invited over. It's, it's after uh, their, their meeting at the synagogue, like they would have already gone in on the Sabbath, had their moment at the synagogue, and now he has been invited back to the house of this Pharisee's member. And we, we know that, we know uh, based off of how verses one through six read, 
that they have invited Jesus over to observe him. They're observing whether or not Jesus is going to heal a man in their presence on the Sabbath. Now, that may sound a little familiar because this isn't the first time that they've done this. In Mark 3 and then other instances in the Gospels, uh, they are observing Jesus and seeing is he going to heal on the Sabbath, which as I have said in the past is always very ironic to me that a bunch of people that have no power to heal someone have made a rule that you can't heal someone on the Sabbath and when Jesus does, they wanna be upset about that. And Jesus has kind of put them in their place. He has healed the man. He's asked them some questions. No one wants to give answer to it because then they know they will look bad and not Jesus, just like the same thing that happens in Mark 3, all right? And now in verse 7, I love when these little moments happen. Like, always pay attention, Hillside, to these little moments where it says that Jesus was being observed, and then Luke makes it very clear that now the observation has switched. I just love that, all right? Maybe you don't care at all. I love it. When Jesus, in verse 7, noticed that all who had come to dinner were trying to sit in the seats of honor near the head of the table, he gave them this, this advice. And so their intent was to invite Jesus, observe him. He handles that flawlessly as always. And now the observation has switched. And he notices that all of these men are clamoring for the positions of honor to be the closest to the power and the influence at the table. Now for us, it may look a little bit different, but for us, You know, sometimes we just randomly find ourselves in seats at a table and we go out with people, right? Sometimes we randomly find them. But I know that there are some of you in here that must sit at the head because the head means that you're the big dog in the family or you're the big dog with your friends and so you have to be seen at the head of the table. And then I also know, and this normally is our our female audience, They want to be sitting in the middle, okay? The middle is my worst nightmare at a table. You know why? Because that means I have to be involved in more conversations than I really want to be involved in, okay? But some of you, this is exactly where you want to be because you don't want to miss out on a conversation. And so you want to be the one sitting in this kind of place of power and influence so that you can be influencing all of the conversations taking place around the table. So this is what's happening as Jesus is observing, is these men are not really concerned about anything else than making sure they are seen with the people with the highest amount of power and influence in their culture. And so now we get to our first little, uh, I guess you could say, mini parable before he flips it. Before that, let's talk about tables, okay? Wasn't that long ago, junior high, high school. Tables start mattering, right? At first, all you're trying to do is get to the table with all of the cool kids. And most likely back in your day, okay, whether that was the 70s, 80s, 90s, early thousands, 
Most likely, the jocks sat at the cool table, okay? The jocks, all the hot chicks, okay, if I'm being honest, they all sat at the cool tables. And so if you were able to get to that table, you had made it. And then once you were at the table, not only did you want to be at the table, but once you were at it, where you sat at the table and how many people surrounded you and how many other cool people surrounded you mattered, right? Let's be honest, it mattered. I have something to tell you, adults. The jock table is not necessarily the only cool table anymore, just to fill you in on this, okay? The nerds have started taking over with some of their own tables. And some of you may be thinking, ah, why wasn't my adolescence today, like back in the day, I got no respect from anybody, all right? What, what students have started figuring out is you can be the quarterback on your high school team and flip burgers the rest of your life, or you can be at the nerd tables with these positions of power and be programming computers and video games and be the boss of the quarterback in high school, all right? And so the nerds are starting to get their own tables and positions of power in junior high and high school. I thought you would just wanna know that that's what's taking place. For some of you, you're like, dang it, why'd I grow up in the 80s, man? I could be something now, okay? This is what Jesus wants to speak into, is this desire and need to always be around and kind of grabbing at power, grabbing at influence. He wants to kind of just now observe and speak into this with this first little mini parable. Verse 8. When you are invited to a wedding feast, all right, hillside, Jesus could not have picked a better scenario slash event than a wedding feast for his audience that he was talking to. I, uh, I officiated a wedding last night, actually. Turned around, came up here. That could also be a little bit why I'm tired. We may not understand as Americans, especially mostly as middle-class suburban Americans, we may not understand how big a wedding feast was to the Jewish people because not a single moment of a wedding feast went without having social status attached to it, all right? Commonly, we go to a wedding, we see that the bridal party is seated kind of in a position where they should be seated, where all eyes can be on them. Most of the time, we have friends and family sitting around them. And for the rest of us, we're just seated by people that we know commonly and, and, and will enjoy conversation with, right? That's generally what happens at most American weddings. Now, I do know that, you know, the higher you get up social ladder, even in America, now you are inviting, uh, you know, your, your crew, your network, your people that are influential and have influenced your business. And so you're inviting people that maybe you're not necessarily close to, but have some type of power and influence and benefit to you both mutually. And so you're inviting that. Well, in the Hebrew culture, you would never invite someone that was under the social level that you were at. You never would do that. You would never invite them. And then on top of that, okay, you would never invite someone under, is they would seat people in like a horseshoe type arrangement 
with each setting being like a lower couch or lower pillows, there would be about three people at that setting. And at that setting, if you were seated in the middle of that setting, that meant that you were even the highest of who was sitting at that, that little setting. And if you were in the middle of the horseshoe, then that meant you were the most powerful person there, basically the most influential. So when Jesus picks a wedding to send home his point in his challenge, he's picking the epitome of all social events for the Jews. He's picking the pinnacle example to be able to speak this deep spiritual truth into what is taking place as he is observing them. All right, so let's get back into it. Verse eight, again. When you are invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the middle, of, don't sit in the seat of honor. What if someone who is more distinguished than you has also been invited? The hosts will come and say, give this person your seat, then you will be embarrassed and you will have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. So Jesus is kind of offering this action and this change in mindset to make sure that one, uh, the Jews wouldn't be committing basically a social suicide. One commentator said it may be better for a Jewish man to die than to be asked in front of all of these other powerful and influential people to go to a lower place of honor. That's how big of a deal it was. And so Jesus is saying, hey, we can fix that. Rather than you guys all trying to get to the best places at the table, just start in an ordinary spot. Just start there. We don't have to fight. You don't have to pry. You don't have to claw for privilege and for, for power and influence. Just start at a lower spot. And it'd be better if you got brought up than for you to be demoted down. Then verse 10. Instead, take the lowest place at the foot of the table. Then when your host sees you, he will come and say, friend, we have a better place for you. Then you will be honored in front of all of the other guests. So the solution, yeah, just sit in a lower place of honor. Now, I want to make sure we understand Jesus isn't suggesting some type of like cheat goat cheat code so that you can have this false humility and kind of trick your host. He's basically just saying, let's take an action that now represents a humility that exists in your life that you don't have to be seen. You don't have to be recognized. You don't have to deal with all of this self-promotion and self-glorifying and this selfish ambition that only thinks about yourself. Let's, let's reverse that. Let's make sure that we don't Get that. He's suggesting this action that now shows the condition of the heart. Now, like Jesus commonly does, at the end of these little parables or these scenarios, we get to the deeper spiritual truth because this is what he now says about his kingdom. Verse 11. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So Jesus is recognizing in this very real scenario that he's bringing up that is connecting deeply with his audience, he's saying something to them and then ushering in his own views on his own kingdom and this is how my kingdom works and the rules that surround my kingdom. This is how we think is it is so much better to be exalted from a place of humility than to be humbled from a place of exaltation. And I was thinking about the fact that 
I love, I love competition. I love it, okay? If there is a score involved, I'm, I'm on, okay? I'm on board. There have been moments where I can't sleep and I wake up and I go out and I turn ESPN on and at 3 a.m. in the morning, okay, darts is on. People literally throwing darts at the dartboard. And I'm like, let's go. It's 3 a.m., I got nothing better to do. Let's go, okay? Early morning watching polo, people ride around on horses with the long sticks and hit the ball. And I'm like, hey, you got my attention for the next hour, okay? Because I love, I just love being around competition. I love seeing it, I love it when somebody wins, okay? I'm like the anti-participation award guy. I want the people that have won to get the awards. I just love it, whether I'm involved with it or I get a chance to watch it, I'm on board because I love the scoring of it. And pretty much every single sport, especially the major ones, are scored the same way, okay? Your score goes up. Now, obviously, soccer, hockey, we're gonna be in the one, two, three, four, five range, okay? Football is gonna be in the middle, uh, baseball somewhere in there as well, basketball is up in the 90s or 100s but they're all scored up until you get to the sport of golf, okay? Guys that play golf in here, women that play golf in here, if I had to guess, a lot of you also score up in golf. But that's not how you play the sport. All of the men over in England right now playing in the open at St. Royal George's course, all right, if they are finishing their rounds with a positive score, then guess what? They're gonna lose, right? They're gonna lose. Because why? Because those rules don't fit the rules of every other competition that is done. And I just see Jesus sitting here and explaining something very deep about his kingdom. My rules don't apply to how the rest of the rules of the world work. While you're sitting here and you're fighting for position and you're fighting for your own ambition and making sure that you are sitting next to the boss at the, you know, the Christmas banquet or you know, you're making sure that you're around the people that can help you get connected or get that new job, while you're doing all of that looking only out for yourself, my kingdom doesn't work that way. Because my kingdom isn't about you just getting what you want. My kingdom is about you using the influence and power, no matter how big that is or no matter how small that is. My kingdom is about you using influence and power to affect the people around you, not just always looking for what you can get from everybody else around you. That's my kingdom. It's not fighting for the highest seats of honor, but it's using the influence that you have to be the ear to listen to and sit next to the person that you know just needs it that night. They just need someone to talk to. It's using it to pray with somebody when no one else is praying, to just sit there quietly and pray together. That's how my kingdom works. My kingdom isn't scored the same way as everybody else. My kingdom is scored the opposite way 
as that. Like I said, now we have this moment, which as I go through my parable Rolodex, I don't think this takes place in any other spot in the gospel, where Jesus switches now the angle at which he is going to address this problem. Because the first problem is this, as one commentator says, false popularity. That you feel like if you just do enough, then you can be popular enough and powerful enough and influential enough. Now he's going to dress a different angle. All right, go, go there with me. Verse 12. Then he turned to his host and he said this. When you put on a luncheon or a banquet, which you need to know, he's kind of starting with a luncheon being, you know, this light gathering of people and then saying banquet and upping the ante a little bit here, okay? For him to say these words about only a luncheon, not that big of a deal. For him to also include banquet, now we're gonna be pushing some buttons that the Jewish people may not really want to hear. When you do those things, when you host or put on a luncheon or a banquet, he said, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, and rich neighbors, for they will invite you back, and that will be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. First, Jesus confronts this need for false popularity, and now as he changes the angle with another side of the parable in the scenario, he now confronts false hospitality. And it's this desire that they had, and if we're being honest, that we have at times, to figure out how can my generosity, how can my hospitality in some way, not just be completely given to someone else, but how can I get something back in return? What can I do to indebt or obligate so that when I need something, I know exactly who already owes me? Hmm. First, he deals with the people sitting at the table. And then he deals with the host who is putting the party on, hidden from two different angles. I, uh, I had a mentor in college who said something very profound to me. He said a lot of profound things, but the, one of the things that's really stayed with me the longest is he said, Mike, can always tell a lot about an individual based off of how they treat people that are below them. You can tell a lot about an individual by how they treat people that are below them, people that have nothing to offer them, people that actually, if their friends see them or, or their coworkers see them, could potentially cost them parts of their reputation. You'll see a lot about who somebody is, the integrity, the character, the godliness that they have based off of how they are to people that have nothing to offer. And again, this whole golf scoring of Jesus' kingdom, this reverse way of thinking 
is now coming back into play. Now, I want to be very careful to make sure that we understand something here. Okay? Let's talk about what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying that you can never have your family members come over for dinner again. Okay? Some of you may not want to, <laughs> but that's not what he's saying. Don't blame it on Jesus, okay? You're like, uh, yeah, I heard I can never have you ever again. Shucks. It really is, you know, I'm really bummed about that. No, that's not what he said, okay? You can't ever have friends over. That, that's not the point that Jesus is making here. You can't ever be with people that, that have the ability to then, you know, help you out in a time of need or just reciprocate a meal, uh, you know, or generate generosity back. If we look at Jesus's life and the lifestyle that he lived, Jesus sat at all different types of people's tables with all different backgrounds, with all different social statuses within their communities. And so I think the bigger point is never Limit, never limit where your influence, your generosity, your hospitality is given based off of whether or not you think you're gonna get something in return. In both of these scenarios, we see selfishness and pride on one side and we see this, this kingdom-minded humility on the other. And it's something that I wrote down that's just been good for me as I run through this is that both of these sides are asking a question. Jesus wants the followers of him to eliminate one side and come over to the other because selfishness and pride ask this question. How can I use others to my own gain? And on the other side, kingdom-minded humility asks, how can God use me for the sake of others' benefits? Opposite score. The kingdom does not think the way that everything else does. Completely opposite. When I, when I sit and I, I kind of like think about some examples that we all probably come in contact with, and some of you are this. I sit and I think about, honestly, our adult student leaders, okay? Because can we just go there for a moment? When you sign up to student ministry to be an adult leader, depending on the job that you're doing, there's a good chance that you will hear us say back to you, hey, uh, yeah, be prepared for the students not to really like you for the first year of what you're doing, okay? Like, that's a real thing. Like, be prepared. It may take a while. Students are tough. All right? Oh, and then when you do finally break in and you do have these moments of being able to serve them, most likely, come on, parents that have teenagers, they're not going to be grateful at all for it. So you will get no gratitude in return. Nothing. Okay? Oh, and, and, if they are grateful, okay, um, you are taking out the poorest demographic at a church, right? Because guess what, parents? Your children don't ask as much of you financially, or most of them don't, as your teenager does. Your child's like, this is what I want for my birthday, and this is what I want for Christmas, and yes, I need some supplies or some equipment for sports or cheer or whatever, Okay, but your teenager will literally three times a week tell you, I have to be at this and this is how much money it costs. 
okay? So by the time that their youth leader says, hey, let's go grab a meal, guess what? That youth leader is on the hook to pay for that kid's meal because they don't have any money, all right? And they already tried to convince you four times that week why they needed money. They're not gonna try for this one or you're not gonna have it. Oh, and then on top of all of that, this is just how amazing our student volunteers are and how much it fits this point perfectly. Uh, we're hoping that the influence, the time, the serving, the mentoring, discipleship, we're hoping not that we see results of this next week, not that we even see the results of all of this time and effort being poured in next year, we're just hoping that by the time that they graduate high school, they have gotten 1% of all that we're doing so they turn out to be a functional human being that loves God. When I sit and I think about the people in this room that have made that commitment, the people that are down in the student ministry right now, it is a complete kingdom-minded perspective that Jesus is talking about here. To be like, I'm going to give, I'm going to give, I'm going to give, and even in the moments that I finally get to have these conversations with a student, these deep life conversations, I'm getting a ton of drama as well poured on top of that. And yet, guess what? It doesn't deter them at all. Because they are taking, they are partnering with you as a parent who also has that perspective for your own student. And they're taking on this kingdom-mindedness that doesn't play by the rules of the rest of the world and they're saying, I will give never getting anything back at all. Every once in a while, I go out with a, uh, I go out with a student, go out with a guy, and, I, and we're, you know, I, I'll pay for a meal or something, and he'll be like, I, I'm sorry, Mike, I, I don't have any money on me right now. I'm like, dude, don't worry about it, it's fine. And I will jokingly say, hey, when you're a millionaire, look me up, okay? Guess what? That's never gonna happen. That's never gonna happen, but it doesn't matter. Because for our volunteers, for our student, that's not the point. The point is that Jesus has asked us, all of us, to think so much differently on how the world scores itself, rather than having to claw, rather than having to fight for your position and your promotion. And that means that you have to put other people around you down at work to make yourself look better. Don't worry about that. I will exalt those that are humble. I'll promote them. You don't have to worry about it. As Jesus does at the end of the first little mini scenario, he, he drops in this, this kingdom-minded approach. He does the exact same thing in verse 14 at the end of the second scenario. Because he says, when you instead invite these people, these people that have nothing to offer you in return, and you don't limit you know, your invitation or the scope of your influence or generosity to only people that can give something back, he says this, then, at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. 
First he says, those that exalt themselves will be humbled, but those that humble themselves will be exalted. That's how my kingdom works. That's how I want you to think as a follower of me. Now he says, hey, when you obey me and your generosity and your hospitality aren't just limited to when you get something back in return, someday you will be rewarded. Now, just in case you're kind of new to this, when you see the resurrection of the righteous, Jesus is talking to a Jewish audience. If you check out the Old Testament, you look at the Gospels as Jesus is teaching to this, this, this Jewish audience, righteousness and faith are deeply connected to each other. The assumption is that you would not be living a righteous life if you already weren't a person of faith in God. So Jesus is not suggesting, hey, if you just do all the right things, then you will receive salvation and God will reward you. He's, he's tying in or he's speaking into this culture that has these very deeply connected righteousness and faith there and saying, when you have faith and you live this way, that's when you will see your reward. And now he hits at the core of both of the scenarios, both of them. Because whether we are the person that is fighting for our seats or trying to rethink about fighting for our seats, or we are the host that has invited everybody over, he's hitting at the core of what's taking place when it comes to selfish ambition, self-glorification, uh, you know, whether it's false popularity or false humility, here's what's really at stake. Here's what he's saying. Do you want to have faith that your heavenly Father will put you in the places that you need to be in the timing that he sees fit? Okay? Do you just want to trust? You want to trust that he will exalt the humble? Do you want to trust that whether your reward is seen on earth or in heaven someday? Do you want to trust in your Father that it will happen? Okay? Or, or as we see with the men in the story, which is the opposite of trust, do you want to try to control your way to it happening? You guys realize? Control is the opposite of trust. Because when it's all about what can I get when I want it? You are controlling situations because you do not believe that God will do it on his timing. You don't trust it. And so you have to kick in and take care of it yourself. And what Jesus is suggesting here in both of these little mini parables. Now remember, parables are not bedtime stories, okay? Parables are actually kind of like nightmares for living sometimes because they hit us right here. And rather than being able to be like, well, that was a nice story. I'm ready to go to bed, okay? It's, dang it, I just read that. and I'm going to be up for an hour thinking about how that pinpoints into my, my heart, Right? The point that in this, this parable is to make sure that we understand that trust can be given. Let God exalt and let God reward. 
Be a hard worker, but your work isn't your highest calling. Your highest calling, all right, your highest calling is to use these seats that you sit in. Your highest calling is to use the seats at your home or at a restaurant to influence and pour into people and heal, be, be instruments of healing, not to see what can I get out of this and how can it benefit me. Who would have thought that where you sit and who you ask to sit around you could tell a lot about the condition of your heart. Let's pray. Father, truly thank you for these moments together. This time that we get to spend challenged by your word. Father, may we and we not worry about the rules of this world, but God, be so much more concerned about the rules of your kingdom. Father, may we trust rather than control. Trust that you will be faithful to exalt and reward in your time. In your name, Lord. Amen. Thank you.